welcome to MuggleCast episode 404. Andrew not found. Question, question. Uh, we've got, we've got, that was a joke, three weeks in the making there. Mm-hmm. Uh, hooray. We did it, guys. Uh, I'm Andrew. I mean, no, I'm, I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Wow, I'm so used to hearing Andrew intro the show that I'm literally copying it word for word, trying to be like <laughs> our leader. Um, yes. But our recording did kind of start off with that uh, 404 file not found <laughs> it, feeling. It did. Is everything running smoothly over there, Micah? Yeah, I hope so. Okay. All right. I know we had <laughs> trouble. If my with internet the- uh, okay. goes down, I think our patrons will know. That's all I'll say. <laughs> That's true. At least we do have people listening live so they can be on the case if something goes amiss. Yeah, they'll let us know. That's uh, streaming live over on Patreon, by the way. We're thrilled to all the patrons that are joining us this morning on Super Bowl Sunday. It's Super Bowl, what is it, XXLVIIMCM something, Micah? I think you added a few extra letters, but that's okay. Yeah, I mean, you're you're the football guy. I just figured, you know, you, I'll ask Micah. Yeah, I mean, I think, Eric, that's close enough to what I've seen on all of the signs around town alerting us that traffic oh, right. is going to be really bad. That's right. It's in it's in Georgia, isn't it? It is. It's in Atlanta. It's just uh, funny because they have these signs all over the place saying Super Bowl, L, whatever, uh, traffic expected to be severe. And I was like, yeah, we know we're sitting in it. <laughs> oh you know what this one's a really simple one it's lee super bowl l-i-i-i there we go so Uh, that's 53 i think l l is in roman numeral that sounds right let's go with it l is 50 yep 53 years of super bowl wow well uh whoever you are rooting for uh today um, definitely. I hope they've won, but when you're listening to this show, we'll already have known. So <laughs> moving on <laughs> before we get to the news, we want to let you know that today's episode of MuggleCast is brought to you by away inspired by true travel stories. Away asks thousands of people, how they pack, why they travel and what bugs them the most about their luggage. Then they designed a bag that solved a few old problems and a few new ones too. MuggleCast listeners can choose from a variety of colors and four sizes. All suitcases are made with a premium German polycarbonate, unrivaled in strength and impact resistance, and very lightweight as well. The interior features a patent-penting compression system, helpful for overpackers, and four 360-degree spinner wheels, which guarantee a smooth ride. I know that I was always somebody walking through the airport, dragging my luggage behind me, and it would end up hitting me right in the back of the leg. I can tell you from experience that these spinner wheels are great. I can just roll the bag right alongside me or in front of me, and my legs thank me for it. The suitcases are TSA approved with a combination lock and have a removable washable laundry bag for those of you who are on the road for work or vacation for long periods of time. Both sizes of the carry-on are able to charge all cell phones, tablets, e-readers, and anything else that's powered by a USB cord. I know when traveling at the airport, people are always looking for the open outlet. And now all you have to do with your away bag is plug your phone right in. These suitcases come with a lifetime warranty and 100-day trial, free shipping on any away order within the lower 48 states, and carry-on sizes that are compliant with all major U.S. airlines, so you can maximize the amount that you pack. 
MuggleCast listeners get $20 off a suitcase. All you have to do is visit awaytravel.com slash MuggleCast and use promo code MuggleCast during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash MuggleCast and use promo code MuggleCast during checkout for $20 off your suitcase. We thank Away for their support of the show. Just a couple of news items. Today, of course, we are talking about chapter by chapter. We're getting into Half-Blood Prince Chapter 16, A Very Frosty Christmas. Uh, but first, just a couple of news items. Micah, did you point this out on our Twitter, or was it Andrew that tweeted this, do you think? It wasn't me. All right. Must have been Andrew. <laughs> he uh, Andrew's on a road trip, by the way. That's why he's 404 at the moment. Um, but uh, he actually popped into the MuggleCast Twitter yesterday. I saw this tweet go out, uh, and he said, J.K. Rowling, at J.K. Rowling, hasn't tweeted or retweeted in 21 days. And mm. I looked this up, and sure enough, it's true. J.K. Rowling's last retweet was January 12th, and I actually also looked up her regular tweets and her likes on Twitter. She also hasn't liked any new tweets, so it looks like our queen is taking a little bit of a social media um, hiatus. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Not, okay. not in like a mean way, not in like I don't want to hear from her. Just I totally understand the need to take a break from social media. And I hope that she is enjoying her time away from it because it's kind of a dumpster fire sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just I mean, she was just really retweeting a lot of political stuff that's going on in the world. And it was all kind of ugly, like the last looking down her timeline. It's just not it's not all happy. Um so if she took this voluntarily, yes, like all the best for her. She certainly deserves peace. But I'm kind of worried about her. <laughs> like, wouldn't she have said something if she was like planning to go away for a month or three weeks? Do you think? Either that or maybe she's like knee deep in trying to rework some of Fantastic Beast 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, possibly. That's a good point. Around <laughs> the same time, right? Yeah. When we learned that the uh, film was going to be delayed in production for a couple of months. Is that around the time she... Uh, disappeared from social media yeah it might have been like a week before but if that is the case then yeah maybe she's just hard at work somebody's uh reply to our tweet was uh our pen and paper her priority question mark um so i thought that was funny interesting yeah and speaking of uh pen and paper i actually finished lethal white oh about really a week or so ago how was okay. it it was really good okay yeah. yeah i was uh i was impressed you know i'm the one thing that always gets me about all these Robert Galbraith books is that the the big reveal is never kind of as shocking as I expect it to be mm. because she did such a great job of kind of I, – I feel like the Potter series is kind of a mystery in a way, uh, the way totally. that she wrote yeah. it. So, and, and she did such an amazing job connecting the threads throughout the series. I just feel like some of the time with these reveals in – I think that this is the fourth book now that she's written in this series. Mm. Just not as impactful, but that could just be me. Mm. No, I agree with you. I haven't read Lethal White yet, but I will say even though they're not as shocking, it still feels satisfying to me, if that makes sense. Mm. Like mm -hmm. I'm still happy with the story. I'm happy with the arc. 
Um, the characters are pretty. Yeah, well every everything's really solid. I mean, it's a really solid story, and it could also just be a conceit of of mystery as a genre because I I too read a lot of mystery outside of the Galbraith series, and it never feels super fantastical in the way that the reveals in the Potter books did. So it, it could just be something that's you know inherent to that genre. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Definitely. But I recommend it. If if those listening haven't picked up one of the uh, Corman Strike novels, they're definitely uh, worth reading. Yeah. Um, where would you rank Lethal White now that you finished it? Probably close to the top. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. I, I read, uh, I've, I've, I'm, I'm about a third of the way through the book, I think, um, and enjoying it so far. So it is the longest of the series thus far yeah it is the uh order of the phoenix of of the group yeah so it is so the mystery remains uh whether jk rowling is okay i hope she's okay i hope we would know about it if she wasn't okay um but if she is just taking a break or putting her nose to the grindstone i hope it all works out for her so we'll we'll keep you posted we're going to do a joe's twitter watch uh every week now on muggle guest till she returns (laughs) (laughs) But um, the only other bit of news here uh, is that uh, thisinsider.com posted that uh, Dan Radcliffe has been cut from uh, Lego Movie 2 or was going to have a cameo that they did not proceed with. Um, You guys know that Lego Movie 2 or the second part is coming out this coming Friday, February 8th. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically, um, I was reading this article that said – Dan Radcliffe had a cameo. He was going to play a cousin of Harry Potter, like a, a fake cousin character. Um, and the director of the movie, Mike Mitchell, recently said, oh, yeah, we were definitely going to go out to Daniel and he was game. But unfortunately, his character got cut. I don't remember why it happened. I think it was because we didn't want to upset any Harry Potter fans. They have such a what? following. Yeah. They have such a following, so we decided to upset the Mary Poppins fans. We just made Larry Poppins. So they were going to do a Larry Potter joke, like, oh, it's his cousin and it's voiced by Dan Radcliffe. But they didn't want to offend yours truly, you and me, us. What? I'm, I, I'm confused. <laughs> me too. What? This sounds like Warner Brothers intervened in some way. Uh, but it's all one big uh, franchise in the sky now. I mean, everybody owns everybody. So it's not yeah. a rights issue necessarily. Why would we be upset, offended, frustrated? It's just these movies are funny movies mm-hmm. that poke fun at different things in their respective series. I don't see why anybody would be bothered by this. Yeah. Um, especially because we know Dan Radcliffe is game to do pretty much anything. He's been able to poke a little fun at his role in Harry Potter on anything from Saturday Night Live to every interview ever. Um, so I don't see why this would be that big of a deal. But bringing it around to Fantastic Beasts, you guys, I think we're getting kind of a reputation as Harry Potter fans of, I don't know, being a threat to the studio. <laughs> Uh, do you think because Crimes of Grindelwald tanked so badly that uh, movie studios are now fearful of our retaliation? Maybe. It's just it's so bizarre to me because I don't I've never gotten the perception that as a fandom, 
uh, we're particularly scary. I think we're passionate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, passion is scary. Maybe, I guess. I don't know. I don't think that anybody you know, ever wanted sort of the reaction to Crimes of Grindelwald to result in sort of like studio studio shying away from having any kind of Harry Potter cameo. I think it was just for us as a fandom to be like, hey, do better. <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah, exactly. I, so there's a possibility that there's just been a mixed message there. Um, if it, It's sort of upsetting that we don't get to see a Larry Potter Lego character guy, maybe on home video if they really did film it. So, and I'm not sure the connection to crimes of Grindelwald because they would have had to have shot this film how long ago in order to have it premiere on February 8th. So I don't even think the feedback on crimes of Grindelwald would have been available to them. Well, it just sounds to me like somebody else from another party stepped in and had an issue with this being done, which is surprising because we've had Cursed Child, which is probably from a text standpoint, one of the worst possible adaptations <laughs> of the Potter series. Mm-hmm. So to put Harry into a Lego movie, especially when they have these great video games, the the Lego video games oh, that yeah. everybody that I've spoken to who's played it really enjoys. Uh, seems really odd. Somebody else had to have stepped in here and, and put the kibosh on it. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. They could have just done, I mean, they could feature the whole cast of Lego Harry Potter. I'm pretty sure Voldemort uh, is in the first Lego movie now that I'm thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Either the Lego movie or Lego Batman, I can't remember which, but he's definitely one of the villains and pretty sure he's voiced by Ray Fiennes. um, Or Ray Fiennes is in, yeah. Wasn't Dumbledore in it as well? Yeah, in the Council of Wizards that uh, Gandalf is there and Dumbledore is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just weird. It's a weird little tidbit that uh, Dan Radcliffe will not be in Lego Movie 2. So stop emailing us. It's not going to happen. Before we get into chapter by chapter, I'd like to tell you about one of our new sponsors this week on MuggleCast, Shudder. Laura, do you like scary movies? I love scary movies. What's your favorite scary movie? (laughs) I appreciate that <laughs> reference, but I I can't name just one. Okay, okay, well, fair. <laughs> well, you don't need to because AMC Network Shutter is a premium streaming video service which revels in all things provocative, evocative, and dangerous. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for four ninety nine a month. Shutter has the largest, fastest growing human curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. You might just call it the Netflix for horror. So Shudder is our new sponsor this week. I've taken a dive through their impressive library and found some recent classics that I grew up with, such as The Faculty, Sleepy Hollow, and one of my all-time faves, the original Resident Evil. They've also got the first film to ever scare me to tears, which was Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs. I was three or four and that film was on TV or just the trailer for the film. And I just remember being an infant and being so terrified. And then the the title, the people under the stairs, just very, very scary. Um, but actually shutter has a new original series. I want to tell you guys about called the discovery of witches. And I think this is right up all of our alley. It features a main female protagonist who is a witch who encounters a vampire 
Historian Diana Bishop is a witch denying her own heritage. When she unexpectedly calls up an ancient bewitched manuscript from Oxford's library, she finds herself thrown into the heart of a dangerous mystery and into the path of the enigmatic vampire Matthew Claremont. So A Discovery of Witches is a Shudder original series. The first season, eight episodes long, is available on Shudder. And Shudder is offering a 30-day free trial to all of our listeners you get to try Shutter free for 30 days. And in order to do that, go to Shutter.com and use promo code MuggleCast. You'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices, including iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and Android. There are spine-tingling thrillers, shocking horrors, and edge-of-your-seat suspense added weekly. I was impressed by the list of movies that Shutter has to offer, and you will be too, from old classics to modern favorites. Try Shutter free for 30 days. That's Shutter.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com, and enter code MuggleCast. We thank Shutter for their support. You know, before we move on to chapter by chapter, I did want to uh, just bring up one thing that Katie Powell over on Patreon just mentioned. I think I texted it to you guys during the week. Uh, she asked, have we heard that they're adding a Gringotts Bank walkthrough to the Harry Potter studio tour? And I actually saw this in an elevator at my office. You know how sometimes elevators have those little TVs that show yeah. random stuff on it? <laughs> yeah. Somehow it was the studio tour and uh, they made mention of the fact that the Gringotts Bank kind of walkthrough is going to be added, I think, in April sometime. Yeah, so, I think that's right. I think I did see something about that. That's pretty cool. I, I like how they keep mm -hmm. adding to the experience and it's not just kind of staying the same way that it has been. And I'm sure they have plenty of props and sets to choose from. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was there when they had just added the Hogwarts Express um, feature uh, to the studio tour. And since then, I know they did the Forbidden Forest. I think they added... Um, either a private drive or Godric's hollow section mm -hmm. and definitely now Gringotts as well. So mm -hmm. you're right, Micah, they definitely keep shaking it up. Um, we'll have to get an, uh, English correspondent on, um, somebody who's actually been to the new thing in April and see mm -hmm. how they liked it. Yeah. April 6th is the date that it is opening. So if anybody's headed there, definitely let us know. Love it. Well, let's uh, let's move on to chapter by chapter, and uh, Micah, you've got the discussion. Thanks, Eric. And uh, we go from horror movies to a very frosty Christmas. <laughs> chapter sixteen of Half Blood think, Prince, like Jack Frost, Jack Frost, which is also on Shutter, the horror <laughs> film. Okay, all right. I was actually going to ask that. There's probably quite a few holiday themed horror movies, but I don't know that there's one that really stands out to me. What hmm. about Krampus? Yeah, Krampus, Micah. I've not seen that. Oh, it's great. Mm. <laughs> you really are a horror fan, Laura. Oh, God, yes. Especially like movies like that that are just kind of like self-aware of how bad they are. <laughs> great. Anyway. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> let's start things off with a seven-word summary. This is where we uh, attempt to summarize the chapter in just seven words. And Laura, you are up first. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start with Rufus. Tries. To. Convince. Harry. Trying to give Laura something to work with here. 
Shoot. Shoot. Rufus tries to convince Harry by shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Not our best, but not our worst. I I wanted to say sucking up, but I was like, that's two words. What about persuasion or force? Force. Yeah, um, persuasion, maybe. Tries to convince Harry by persuasion. (laughs) That's literally the same thing as trying to convince is to persuade. But okay. All right. Yep. So Rufus tries to convince Harry by persuasion, and uh, that comes towards the end part of the chapter, but we'll start things off. Speaking of trying to persuade people, the last chapter ended with Harry overhearing Snape and Draco and learning about the unbreakable vow that Snape made. He, once again, is with one of his two best friends and trying very hard to persuade Ron to believe him that Number one, this conversation happened and that Snape had made an unbreakable vow. The one thing to note, though, is that Ron starts to take a little bit of a different tone with Harry, I think, once he hears the words unbreakable vow. Hmm. And do we finally think that maybe he has somebody that is starting to believe in what he's saying? Yeah, I think so. I also think that at this point in the series, Ron, people at home are going to be very upset that I say this, but you know, sorry, not sorry. Ron kind of tends to blow with the prevailing wind. So it does seem like he can be more easily influenced by whoever he's around in the moment, which isn't uncommon for teenagers. And I do think that he grows out of it. But I think the fact that he is, you know, sort of his only friend who's at this Christmas gathering is Harry. So I think he's somewhat apt to take his side. Although he does have that experience with the Unbreakable Vow. So that's worth mentioning um, that Fred and George tried to get him to swear an Unbreakable Vow when he was like five. Yeah. Yeah. And Harry also runs into similar situation in terms of pushback a little bit later on in the chapter when he tells Mr. Weasley about what he overheard. And then he tells Lupin about what he overheard. And so... Uh, it's interesting to see the feedback that he starts to get from the adults in the series as opposed to to his friends. Um, but speaking of Fred and George, um, they are at it again, uh, taunting Ron with the fact that he's not able to use magic <laughs> to cut up some vegetables for for dinner. And I wanted to point out the fact that Ron tosses the sprout knife at Fred. And we know what happens to Fred in Deathly Hallows. And so you you try and look at some of these things earlier on in the series, whether intentional or not. But I think given that it is J.K. Rowling, it's certainly possible that this was a bit of foreshadowing as to what might happen to Fred in the future. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I was actually thinking there was something to the left buttock that's mentioned because I thought Fred loses his left, his left ear. But actually, it's George's left ear or George's right ear. George loses an ear. Mm-hmm. The Weasley twins are doomed, everybody. <laughs> um, I think it's possible that it is foreshadowing. I mean, throwing a knife at somebody. But how impressive is it that uh, Fred is able to just wave his wand and turn the knife into like a paper airplane? Like, that's good stuff. Like, we don't even see that stuff in Hogwarts at all really get used. And Fred and George are flaunting their magic, but... They are pretty good, and Ron is Ron, and even Harry are nowhere near that level. Mm-hmm. And do you think that this goes back to some of the discussion we've been having in the last couple of episodes in terms of how Ron is treated 
by his siblings. You can look at this as just being a funny moment, but then Laura mentioned the fact that he was almost forced into making an unbreakable vow when he was five years old. Mm. Fred and George are taunting him throughout the beginning part of this chapter. He doesn't have an easy go of it. What I will say is I found it very interesting that they bully Ron about Lavender um, because they previously bullied Ginny in the Weasley's Wizard Weezes chapter of uh, who she was hanging. They like grilled her about who she was dating. And uh, they I was pleased to see because I found that first part to be pretty problematic that they didn't uh, or that they did the same or, you know, basically insulted Ron's, um, you know, character or likability or attractiveness uh, to his face here in this chapter. So at least they weren't sparing of their other younger siblings that uh, Fred and George are just having their nose in the romantic affairs of their younger siblings. And that's the bottom line there. Yeah, I think Fred and George harass their siblings with um, sort of equal opportunity. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, thank God. Yeah, because I was really offended by how they approached Ginny in uh, that one chapter. But uh, they actually they do worse with Ron. I mean, saying that he's that Lavender Brown must be must have had an accident. um, And that's why she's into him. So, you know, pretty rough, pretty rough stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, also just not uncommon for siblings to say stuff like that to each other. Yeah. You know, that's. It's kids. Me and my brother used to say really nasty things to each other. So, <laughs> older brother, younger brother, younger. How, how many years? Five. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a younger sister, three years. Okay. Micah, you got a brother? You ever say anything mean to him like this? I do. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. But never threw a knife at him. Oh, I can remember. well. That... And he did not turn it into a uh, paper airplane either. <laughs> At least from recollection. Uh, and did you ever peel sprouts? Because that's something I've never done. Not that I can remember. Nope. Yeah. Okay. Lucky us having to prepare food in the kitchen for dinner. We've all helped, but never had to peel sprouts. It seems like daunting work. It seems a little tedious, a little, mm. little like you wish magic could help. Yeah, for sure. So going back to this whole situation with Draco... Harry has, I think, been rejected so many times that he can now imagine what different people are going to say to him. He actually plays it through in his head what Hermione would say. And I think (laughs) that this has now just gotten to a point where has it become a running joke that he believes that Draco is up to something and pretty much anybody that will lend their ear is just telling him that Snape is just doing what uh, he needs to do in order to get Draco maybe to give him more information. It's just, it's kind of frustrating to watch him go through this at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It almost seems like it's, he's sort of like gone around to everybody who he could possibly voice this concern to. And I sort of just imagine them all like getting together for a beer at the end of the day and being like, (laughs) yes, he brought it up to me. Yeah, he's... Yes, I told him that Snape is on our side, (laughs) you know. Harry's always on about Draco. They should just kiss already and get it over with, (laughs) (laughs) you know. He's he's obsessed with that Malfoy kid. Um, Yeah, it is is unfortunate. I think it is a little bit of a... I wouldn't say it's an inside joke in the sense... Or like a joke, a running joke in the sense that anybody finds it funny. 
but it's absolutely like I, I do kind of wish the um, thread were not being the string were not being plucked as as much as it is or the thread being thumbed, whatever you call it. We're like this Harry suffers by nobody, you know, believing him multiple times. And even in this chapter, when he seems to have definitive proof still gets rebuffed a little bit. I mean, I, I think that the point that Lupin brings up and where Mr. Weasley says it's down to whether or not you trust Dumbledore, like that's all right. I think that's all true and correct and should be useful for Harry. But Harry's deal isn't sort of the vindication of proving he's right. Harry really just does want to know what Draco's doing because it's not good. Mm-hmm. And whether or not Snape is acting to save his own life, which we know is absolutely true. Um, and Harry says he's not that good of an actor. Uh, he must be in on it. He is in on it, but the reasons why aren't going to be revealed to the end of the book. So unfortunately, we just see Harry suffer. And so every time he goes around and is telling people and they don't believe him, and I'm pretty sure he actually will tell Hermione at some point and her response will probably be as he suspected. It's just not, you know, a winning battle. Mm-hmm. And it's also very interesting to hear Mr. Weasley or Lupin say that it comes down to whether or not you trust Dumbledore Harry seems to really kind of not want to hear that as as a response, but then yet look at the end of this chapter and how defensive he is with respect to Dumbledore. So I just, you know, he kind of, he's in two different spots in my, in my mind. One here where it's like, oh, well, I don't want to hear about Dumbledore, but then he uses Dumbledore as his defense when he's having this conversation with Scrimgeour. That's a brilliant point. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's almost as if he he doesn't completely trust Dumbledore, but he's not sort of willing to admit that to himself. Yeah, yeah, right, for sure. Which is understandable. Yep. Um, I wanted to bring up this point. It's kind of a change of pace, but I think a, something that we've talked about on the show a lot over the years is sort of Ron's um, perception of house elves. And his sort of bewilderment that Hermione cares about their well-being. Well, there was a little point in this chapter where I was like, no wonder Ron feels this way. Fred and George stupefied a living creature, a troll from their garden, painted it and glued wings to it so it could serve as the angel on their Christmas tree. And nobody really seems to notice this. Or that it's weird that there's the there's this like little garden gnome troll thing like sitting on top of the tree glaring down at all of them, <laughs> and I'm like, well, no wonder. Yeah, no wonder Ron doesn't recognize uh, that those beings should be respected and treated fairly. Right. It's like no wonder he's not really thinking about the bodily autonomy of things that aren't human. Um, <laughs> yeah, if he's learning from Fred and George, because- yeah. Uh huh. Well, and also, who did Fred and George learn from? <laughs> Themselves. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just interesting because I think the Weasleys are very emblematic of, you know, families that we might sort of see in our own culture. You know, the Weasleys, they're pure blood, So they sort of have that standing within their community. But they're also very progressive compared to a lot of pure blood families. And yet they still seem to have some of the same hangups yeah. as those families. So it's just, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. Cause one thing that I thought about when I read this chapter, before it got up to this point, you're thinking about, oh, it's Christmas at the borough, all these great descriptions of, of things happening around the house. And probably even when you read this as, as 
a younger person, even a teenager, whenever you read the Potter series, you're probably saying, oh, isn't that just so kind of fitting in with the magical world that they stunned a garden gnome and put it up and dressed him up on top of the Christmas tree? Like it just adds to the magic. It adds to the the feel of the series. But now you're reading it in a different light. To your point, Laura, you you know you realize that they're they're taking another living creature, they're binding it against its will, they're putting it on top of a Christmas tree, dressing it up, making it look all stupid and everything. And everyone's just kind of sitting around the fire, not paying it any attention. I mean, it, it bit him. It bit Fred. He was just trying to pick pick some carrots and it bit him. And so he showed it, you know, some respect, I guess. I, 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 no, I yeah. It's different interpretations, though, at, at different times. Because if we did this chapter by chapter, let's say 10 years ago, versus doing it mm. today, we probably wouldn't have paid much attention to the point that Laura just raised. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think it's an it's an incredibly important point to bring up. This creature is bound against his will. And I and you know, like Laura was saying about the families and 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 sort of uh privilege, um neither Mr. nor Mrs. Weasley, who surely see that what they've done, what Fred and George have done, demand that it be taken down. Mrs. Weasley's not saying uh, these creatures are deserving of our respect. They live, you know, alongside us in this uh, in this house or out in the garden. They're on our property. You must treat them with respect. Never dress them up in a tutu against their will. You know, this is all allowed. Mm -hmm. So you're completely correct. Like they didn't raise their kids to be tolerant of the foreign creatures that are even in their own backyard. Yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting because, you know, also to their credit, they raise their kids not to be judgmental about people, right? So Mr. Weasley loves muggles. The family doesn't read into their pureblood status. You know, obviously, they're friends with Harry and Hermione who are not purebloods. Mm. So they are definitely very progressive. It's just interesting to see some of like mm -hmm. the old hangups that come with being a pure blood family still kind of existing in a way. It's interesting. It's kind of like when you meet very, you know, progressive minded people who then sometimes <laughs> on the other token, like will say something that's like, Oh, that's really problematic. <laughs> they, that you just said that. Do you know that that sounded kind of like, racist or sexist or whatever. And oftentimes it's just ignorance, mm. you know? Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think this is a case of sort of like old traditions and ignorance still existing within the Weasley family. Yeah. I, I like that. Yeah. And speaking of progressive, there's a werewolf sitting in their uh, living yeah, room. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Huh. Well, this is a brilliant paradox you brought up. Mm -hmm. And it gets interesting later on in the chapter with those garden gnomes because they really kind of parallel the conversation that's happening between Scrimgeour and Harry if you kind mm -hmm. of read into like the gnome and and what it's trying to do and it's trying to like catch something and yeah so we'll get into that mm. but I uh, also just wanted to call out our good friend uh, Celestina Warbeck uh, her music is playing throughout the course of the conversation that's happening uh, in the living room and uh, it also sets a little bit of a uh, confrontation off between Mrs. Weasley, who loves Celestina, and Fleur, who clearly does not. Uh, but Celestina, of course, performs daily at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Eric, I know you've had 
the uh, the privilege of being on stage with her. I thought maybe you want to talk about that. Yeah, you know, I, I have to say I've uh, long held a little bit of contempt for the Wizarding World of Harry Potter Orlando uh, and, and theme parks in general boasting about how many attractions they have. Because if you look at it on the surface, Wizarding World has three rides, right? How many rides does something have? But for attractions, things like uh, food, drink, nightly shows, it doesn't get better than Celestina Warbeck in the Diagon Alley section of the theme park. And and I have to say, when I first saw this at the at the opening of uh, Diagon Alley or, or shortly thereafter, I was blown away. Uh, that wasn't when I was pulled up on stage. That was later. But um, it's, it's just a really great show, and it's a wonderful thing for them to have taken from the books. And I think probably this specific chapter of this book probably has the most weight uh, on, you know, what they, cause they, these songs are, I believe directly lifted uh, into, you know, her act or her routine. Yep. Um, at the very least, they did a special Christmas uh, version of the routine recently, or uh, a couple years ago towards the winter season. And Celestina was on stage singing these lyrics that are, that are called out at various points in this chapter. So, um, but really, you know, making it more fleshed out, making Celestina a person of color, uh, which was not, as far as I'm aware, called out ever in the book because she's just over the radio all the time um, and really fleshing out the world uh, and building a Celestina Warbeck character mm -hmm. uh, as she is portrayed is a really exciting thing. And that's the reason why the park is such a cool thing to go and see. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Now, turning our attention to the conversations that Harry has while this music is playing uh, the first one is with Mr. Weasley, and then he talks a bit more with Professor Lupin. And this really gives us, I think, our first real insight into how the ministry is functioning with Scrimgeour in power. I mean, going back to when he takes over, we obviously meet him in the first chapter of this book, but we don't have a sense for how he's operating things different from Fudge. And Mr. Weasley mentions that and quote, top levels want to look as though they're making progress. Three arrests sounds better than three mistaken arrests and releases. And this is referring to potential Death Eaters. Stan Shunpike is mentioned. And I know we all look at Fudge. He was delusional. He didn't want to admit that Voldemort could possibly be back. But I wanted to just throw out the question, what do we think this says about Scrimgeour as minister, that he's just doing things to make himself look good, essentially. Yeah, I mean, we we clearly see at the end of the chapter that um, he does not have as much control as he would like it to seem he does. I think also, um, I, I kept thinking about sort of like broken windows theory throughout this chapter and thinking about like the arrests that were made of people who are clearly not Death Eaters and sort of this uh, mentality of like, well, we need to make it look like we're doing something. And that's sort of what broken windows theory is about mm. in the real world. This idea that, well, if we sort of prioritize um, things in our communities that have the appearance of crime, mm. then, and, we, and we pull those things out, then there will be no crime. Because people won't be incentivized to do that. So we're going to prioritize things like petty theft and maybe selling things that you shouldn't be selling on a street corner um, or 
you know, drunkenness in public. Huh. So this idea of like really like pinpointing these very, very low level crimes that maybe should not be the priority of a government that is facing much bigger threats in order to make it look like, one, they're doing something, and two, so that they can pass along this idea that, well, if we get rid of these sort of like very visible petty threats on the low level, then we will sort of avoid larger threats in the future. That's so fascinating. So like really by removing a drunken boasting Stan Shunpike from a bar, you know, and having fewer people boasting that they're Death Eaters – you just, you know, the ministry seems like they're actually cleaning up Death Eaters when they don't really have the first clue where to start. Correct. Yeah. I'd never heard of broken windows before, which shows my ignorance. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's, well, I mean, it's it's unfortunate because it's something that's, you know, practiced in a lot of our major cities. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. Um, I also think it's, it's a little bit of um, – insubordination on the part of mr Reasley, like he's just kind of uh he's telling it like it is which which i think is very valuable and it's it's certainly not falling on deaf deaf ears i think that mr weasley's input uh is taken by harry exactly in the way that it needs to be i i think the reason the end of this chapter surprises me and pleases me so much is because harry has had the um exact handful of experiences that allow him to have his very specific negative view of the ministry, right? If it weren't for, and I know we'll get there in a moment, but, you know, specific instances of the writing on his hand and and specific encounters with Fudge and previous ministers, Harry and the ministry could be friends. Harry could be going in and out. Um, unfortunately, I think the ministry is just in a bad way. And it's not necessarily Scrimgeour's fault. I, I tend to feel bad for Scrimgeour, um, even in spite of sort of his behavior in this chapter. I find myself feeling like he inherited a sinking ship. Um, he was not strong enough, despite his you know war history, to really turn things around. And he is running a ministry that is complacent uh, to do these things, to commit these these crimes to imprison people wrongfully. His ministry is willing to do that because it's not competent enough or perhaps at this point too corrupt enough to really affect real change. And he's just kind of the man who's got to go down with this sinking ship. And unfortunately, you know, his attempt to recruit Harry, which I think is ballsy, um, fails. And so he's left to walk away. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. his big mistake was bringing up Umbridge. <laughs> Yeah. In that conversation. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, totally. I, I do tend to agree with you, Eric. I think that, you know, a lot of sort of the incompetencies that existed in the ministry were inherited hmm. in the case of Scrimgeour, and that is not his fault. Um, however, I don't think that he's reacting in the best possible way that he could. Yeah, exactly. And and I think it, this goes to, to both of your points that – the ministry in, in many ways is already compromised at this point mm. with people in high-ranking positions that may have ties back to Voldemort. And we may not know of all of them, but there's definitely some that could be you know, passing information back to him or exerting control over others. And I think that even in this conversation that Harry has with Mr. Weasley before we even get into the situation that develops in Deathly Hallows, 
it just doesn't see, it seems like Mr. Weasley operates in a very much like in a silo almost compared mm. to other things that are going on, or at least we can start to see those situations taking shape. I feel like, um, and, and also Eric, you kind of touched on this, but Stan Sean Pike, shouldn't somebody like Mr. Weasley be advocating on, on his behalf, potentially not, maybe not Stan, but other people who are just being arrested for the sake of being arrested. It seems something, something's wrong here where, you know, the people that we would normally expect to speak up and do something about it aren't. That's an interesting question. I think there are tons of parallels between where the wizarding government is at in this chapter and where American government is at in this moment in American history. Uh, whether or not there are members in, uh, you know, presidential cabinet who are speaking out against uh, leadership that is imprisoning innocent children or, uh, which, Hell, that's straight out of this this book um, and straight out of the headlines. Like whether or not there's uh, sort of an insurrection or um, whether Mr. Weasley would be part of a protest march uh, or something to really, you know, have his voice heard that this is negative. I think it's already – even though we tend to think of book seven, which we've already done chapter by chapter four completely, as the book where things become completely totalitarian and unrelenting – and unfixable, the government is more or less already there. I think that we already have people, Micah, you mentioned uh, high up people that are connected to Voldemort. Uh, Yaxley comes to mind, and so does uh, Pious Thickness, who's, I think, at this point or will be shortly the head of the magical department of law enforcement. And this is a guy who's either imperious by Voldemort, I can't remember, or exactly, you know, a Death Eater mm -hmm. in the highest position. This is how they're able to eventually kill uh scrimjar and so you know it's it's corrupt from within whether you have supreme court justices who are guilty of sexual assault uh a uh, a president of the united states who has had multiple sexual assault allegations you have dirty people in the highest levels of government how do you eradicate it and unfortunately for harry potter i don't think his world ever really does uh, until after the war when there's tons and tons and tons of bloodshed. But do you organize marches if you're Arthur Weasley? Do you protest? And, you know, do we think less of him for not doing so? Yeah, that's a really good question. And you just kind of like, I don't know, you had me thinking about sort of historical parallels as well, um, since you brought up the current situation in the US. I know on prior shows, we had drawn parallels between uh, the Harry Potter books and, you know, World War II. Um, and sort of like the rise of Hitler. And it's always really interesting to look back on history and look at sort of all of these atrocities that were happening, but then also observe that, you know, sort of like the the every man in the general public who's not, you know, really affected by these things because he's not a target and how he's just sort of able to go on living his life normally while, you know, people are being put in concentration camps or while there are raids happening in neighborhoods a couple miles down the street. And so he still goes to work every day and he still celebrates Christmas with his family and he does all the normal things that he would do because un unfortunately there's just there, – there's sort of like a part of the human experience that is – feeling like no matter how bad things get, you still kind of have to continue living. 
Mm. So I don't I don't think that's an uncommon thing that we're seeing here from Mr. Weasley. I also think that because he works at the ministry, he has to kind of play his cards correctly. Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's in a position where he's able to get intel. So he can't necessarily put his neck out there every time an individual is wronged because he has to consider sort of the greater good of like, do I do this, you know, what would be the right thing by putting my neck out there to get Stan Shumpike out? Or do I continue in my position and continue giving intel to the order so that we can hopefully bring this to an end? Mm. It's about the atrocities that you can stomach. Yep. Mm. Right. Because if in this book, we just see how the ministry is doing things for the sake of doing them, whether it's raids or arresting people, that just by itself can lead to what we see in Deathly Hallows, where they develop the Muggleborn Registration Commission. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think like it, the groundwork is being laid here when you have good people that are kind of turning a blind eye to what's going on because you know it sells papers and it makes the government look good but then look at what happens as a result of that yep in the next book mm-hmm. no there's that that really famous poem about it's you know by doing nothing yeah yeah exactly like they came for them but you know i wasn't one of them so i did nothing mm. this discussion is so interesting to me and like i can't wait till we talk about werewolves in a moment <laughs> i know <laughs> <laughs> like it's already like this is well let's uh-huh. talk about werewolves Let's get in. Let's get into okay. that discussion then, because uh, Lupin is 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 kind of part of the conversation with Mister Weasley and Harry, and then finally they kind of get some time to talk one on one. And Harry approaches Lupin about the Half Blood Prince, and he wants to know if there's any information that Lupin may have that could be helpful to him in figuring out who it is, and. The spell that gets mentioned, Levicorpus, Lupin says that that spell was, uh, uh, he refers to it as that that one had a great vogue during my time at Hogwarts. (laughs) Vogue. And I had no idea that spells can kind of come in and out of being popular. That's the sense that I got from what Lupin was saying. But this person actually invented the spell. And... Uh, Harry notes the fact that his dad used it. He saw it in the pensive and that he used it on Snape. And Lupin ruled out the fact that him, either him or Sirius or James came up with this spell. But what about Snape? I mean, I, I think that you know we're meant to not necessarily think that somebody who the spell is used on could potentially be the person that invented it. Right. But... I think subtle hints are being dropped here about the identity of the Half-Blood Prince. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, a point, so much a point that J.K. Rowling brings it up at the end of the book when Harry's attacking Snape and he says, you dare to try and use my own spells against me? Um, you know, he he fully sees the irony of uh, Harry trying to leva corpus him or sectum semper him or whatever it is that he's trying to do specifically. It's just, I love... How much of a how how put off of the scent Harry and the readers are just by Lupin's casual tone, 
when he says, oh, you know, spells come and go, which you're right, Micah, like we haven't heard of that before. We haven't really had that insight into the wizarding world of um, spells as if they were like fashion trends, like leg warmers or something, you know, or low waist jeans are coming back, you know, oh, so is Levacorpus, you know, it's just like, <laughs> it just, it just kind of um, boggles the mind how easily JK Rowling is able to deflect mm-hmm. sort of direct suspicion onto the Marauders era, even though now we know who the Heffler Prince really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's definitely clues here, but we're misdirected. We're misdirected by Lupin saying that spells come in and out of fashion were misdirected by Lupin telling Harry to go look at when the book was published, which I thought was, you know, who cares if the book was published 50 years ago? It doesn't mean then that it was, it, it was written in that way 50 years ago. It could have been written in by somebody 15 years ago. Who knows? And, yeah, but it wouldn't that, have been written before. You know, like that, I think that's a great piece of info. And it, it, even though it serves to throw Harry off the scent, it's great advice from Lupin. It's really smart. Well, um, it, it can provide some context, but I think for us as readers, it's meant to kind of throw us off the scent of, yeah. of it potentially being somebody that went to school in the time frame of, of the Marauders. Because let, let's just say, you know, we all went to school. If we got a textbook that was written in, even if the textbook was published 50 years ago, it doesn't mean that it was written in 50 years ago, right? Right. Um, so, but it couldn't have been, but it couldn't have possibly been written in 51 or 52 years ago. Well, yeah, yeah. That, there's some that's context the that's provided. I just, I don't know. I didn't like that. <laughs> it's good <laughs> advice, but I don't like the conclusion that Harry draws from it. Yeah. Well, I mean, so Snape has his mother's old potions book, right? Is that what we, is that the whole thing mm-hmm. right here? Like yeah. it was, it's clear, it's clearly a hand me down. Like his mom was probably at school 20 something years before him. And that's probably her potion book. Mm-hmm. Um, and inheriting his mom's potion book. He wrote that it's the property of the half blood prince, which is her son. That, 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 connecting the threads, connecting mm-hmm. the dots. There you go. Um, yeah, it just puts Harry off the scent another couple chapters. What I find to be the most touching between Harry and, and Lupin's conversation, though, is that Lupin understands implicitly what Harry is getting at. And Harry wants to feel an additional level of connection to his father. And Harry, I think it's even, J.K. Rowling writes this pretty delicately, but it's like at one point, Harry abandons all pretense and is just like, hey, did you or my dad write this? And Lupin smiles and understandingly, he says, you know, no, we had nothing to do with this. And Harry's a little, just a little bit crestfallen that the Halfwood Prince is not his dad. Um, and Lupin's able to make a joke about it, about James not being that conceited. But it just kind of, you know, it it really is a subtle touching moment that reminds me of Lupin and Harry's relationship in book three, that even though we've had precious little Lupin the last several books and still don't get any Lupin until he dies, basically these small moments are really, really touching and they underscore why I love Lupin as a character. Yeah. He's definitely the most, I think sort of sensitive and emotionally perceptive of all the Marauders, Hmm. which also makes him my favorite. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, Lupin also is very defensive of Snape in this chapter, and I wondered if his current state 
uh, you know, he's he's clearly going through a lot, being tasked with you know trying to rally the werewolves uh, to the quote unquote good side, or at least pass back information to Dumbledore and others in terms of what's going on. And he's he's very sympathetic to the fact that Snape made him the Wolfsbane potion throughout his tenure at Hogwarts. And I wonder, though, is is his current state, because of the fact that he's going through what he's going through, and he knows that Snape kind of lent him a helping hand, Is does he overlook things here? Yeah. I mean, certainly. I think any time your justification for something is, well, it just comes down to, do you trust Dumbledore's judgment? Then, yeah, you're going to overlook things mm-hmm. for sure. Now, in the case of Lupin and Snape, I think that he brings up some solid points about things that Snape has done to prove his allegiance to to the light. Yeah. Um, and I also think that, you know, Harry, as as Lupin rightfully points out, Harry's carrying an old prejudice from his father and his godfather. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, that's another sort of like, I think, desperate attempt for Harry to try and hold on to something that was given to him by them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Harry can't keep any of that, can he? Mm-mm. Just the eyes. He just gets to keep his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> um, all the rest is problematic. Yeah. It just I, 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 yeah, I definitely think that um, this situation of the prejudice that he gets and Lupin's like, it's not that Lupin's only example is Snape was really nice to me. So I can't hold a grudge, but Lupin spent most of his life holding a grudge against Snape. And he says, so he says, we will never be friends. Um, But I can't deny that, that he made it, he made life considerably easier for me during that period of that small period of time. And like Harry has his points too. But at this point, I think there's enough evidence in, in all of the books, you know, I mean, every year Harry suspects Snape of something and he's, it's proven that he's not, but it just, it just shows that there's no one answer. Right. And, and, and even though Harry has some of the most incriminating evidence against Snape that he's ever had, um, up to this point, and he's sure in for a surprise when he finds out that Snape overheard the prophecy, which is either this book or the next book. But it just, um, you know, there's Snape is so clearly in the middle on all this. He's so clearly a either a double agent or a, a gray area for that. There's like he's not all good, but he's not all bad. And Harry just doesn't have the ability to like really cope with that. I yep, think. his Facebook relationship status with Snape is it's complicated. <laughs> i think everybody's with snape is it's complicated Mm -hmm. very true um yeah yeah. and geez you know to kind of tie this back though to the conversation we were having earlier about the ministry ministry could take a page out of voldemort's book at least from the standpoint of trying to play to underserved and underrepresented or underrepresented communities like the werewolves. And I know that Dumbledore is sending Lupin to try and gain information and, and, you know, to kind of serve as a spy in a way. So a couple of questions came to mind. One, I wondered how Lupin would be able to do this. I, I feel like his identity is known at this point and his allegiances are known at this point. So I wonder how he's able to kind of infiltrate this underground community and act as a spy. And then, 
you know, we learned the backstory about him and Fenrir Greyback and the, just the absolute horror show that Fenrir is that he preys on children. And, but yet somehow Voldemort is able to utilize somebody like that and probably make promises not unlike, you know, when I heard about this, it made me think a lot of Grindelwald and how he is able to play on certain insecurities and certain fears. We see it in that, in that scene um, in the mausoleum in the graveyard um, when he's talking to all of his followers. Th- this was not unlike that in my mind. And I know I kind of threw a lot out there, but I feel like Voldemort is able to, you know, really utilize this community as, in, in a bad way, whereas potentially the ministry and, and others could have done so in, in a good way. But it speaks to the larger issue at hand of how the ministry has treated werewolves, giants, house elves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, throughout the course of the series and probably even before. Yeah, totally agreed. I mean, anytime you sort of push a community away and culturally regard them as deviants or evil, then good luck when the when the big final war comes around they're not going to be on your side they're going to be playing for the other guy and that's exactly what happens here you're totally right uh when i was reading this i made a connection in my brain between werewolves and white supremacists that i want to talk about briefly and see if there's any valid to it yeah that's interesting bring it up so i don't know where to start other than to say um if well Voldemort is giving werewolves a voice they think they'll have a you know a better life under him in the same way that I think our current president has given a lot of power to um these underserved groups that are that are now allowed to have a voice somebody like Fenrir Greyback doesn't deserve a voice he's using his um abilities uh for such evil and nefarious purposes and and i think is beyond redemption at this point now not all werewolves are bad people um but uh, i think that there's something to it in the way that um these i keep wanting to say white supremacists and i mean werewolves are being promised you know a good future and, and coming together the question of whether or not lupin uh how lupin got in uh and the book does say like it it wasn't easy because he shows signs of having tried to live amongst the the other wizards and and humans and i think that they probably smell it on him that he's kind of a a human lover um but ultimately he's white ultimately he is a werewolf so he is allowed in the club and it's just like being in i mean to be a white supremacist if you're white it's probably easy to get in so you know that's kind of my theories on that. That's so interesting. It kind of remind. Did you guys see Black Klansmen? No, I didn't. There's um there's a point in that where a Jewish man is able to infiltrate the KKK because mm. he passes for being white, and so he has mm. to like sit around and hear them say all of these horrible things about Jewish people and pretend like he agrees with it. So I don't know. Anyway, that it's like a random connection to a completely different form of media. I like this point. I think it's, I don't, how do I put it? I think it's a really interesting post Potter interpretation. Mm. 
like as the world continues developing, I think that we're going to see random connections between what's going on in the world now and what was written in the mm. books. So I love that. That's really cool. I think it's it's interesting how you were able to make that connection, considering the fact that originally the idea of werewolves, you know, it was kind of about sort of the the world's or I mean the the muggle world's distrust of like certain bloodborne diseases like yep. HIV AIDS. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think it's really fascinating and totally valid that we could make a completely different interpretation based on something like white supremacy. Mm-hmm. I love this. Mm. I just got chills actually, re- Eric. <laughs> it's it's scary though too that to your point, Laura, when this series was written, it would be reflective of those individuals or even going back and making comparisons to World War II. Yet here we sit in 2019 and we're making comparisons to present day. Yep. I don't know what that says about us as a society. Well, I think it says that history repeats itself. Mm. Oh, it does, which is why it's more important than ever to be reading these books. Seriously, man, this should be required reading. <laughs> it should in be. In Laura Mallory's household. Yeah, right. Oh, seriously. Does oh, she still God. live in Georgia? Yeah. But um, She's she probably going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> she was in front of you in that traffic jam, Laura. You didn't even realize it. Oh, somebody, I'm fairly positive she would never be caught dead inside the atlanta perimeter (laughs) oh man because it's so liberal you Mm -hmm. mean well yeah also it's just a it's a very diverse community here oh (laughs) i'm just i'm not sure okay anyway (laughs) all right okay so still on werewolves though and still on aids um one thing you reminded me because i'd forgotten that uh, and it's absolutely accurate that it was sort of an AIDS allegory, I think, when it was first written, um, especially in book three, at least, where, you know, Lupin is shunned for his his bloodborne affliction. I think and, – and if you get somebody like Fenrir who wants to infect people, he wants to infect as many – like those people are very problematic. <laughs> people with bloodborne diseases who see it as their – you know, purpose to infect, infect as many people as possible. Like, yes, that's a problem. But I also see this, like thinking about what you said about black Klansman, Laura, about what conversation must be like. And I've always wondered this for Lupin, who is there? And, you know, Fenrir is apparently making an interesting case for, uh, empowering these werewolves to take what is theirs to fully live out. He basically, and Micah, to your point about Grindelwald, tells these people that they deserve better, that they are owed better, and that they are entitled to more. And I think in the, I think the ministry right. has absolutely not given werewolves their fair shake. I think that's a hundred percent accurate. But by enraging and encouraging these people to to lash out and and take by force sort of the way that Voldemort would use the werewolves to do so uh, and use them against his political enemies is very much more in the realm of, I think, white supremacy and what that's doing in today's society than the AIDS ev- epidemic ever was about. Like, I think it's it's unfortunately these werewolves are being really empowered. And I think Lupin is having to probably listen to a lot of conversations and maybe even throw in like a racial epithet himself of like, you know, just to blend in mm. of talking down on humans or wizards or whatever. Like, I can't imagine what he's going through. It's almost an impossible task for him because 
Fenrir Greyback can just point to the current state of things and say, look, if Voldemort takes over, then we're going to have so much more available to us than what the ministry currently allows. And that's why I think for Lupin, it's almost the losing battle that he's that he's fighting. Like He's the exception, not the rule, when you look at the fact that he was able to attend Hogwarts, that Dumbledore created you know, the Whomping Willow and, and allowed him to use the Shrieking Shack for his condition. And that probably wasn't the case for many other children that grew up with being a werewolf and, and have had to live through a society that looks down upon them, that shuns them, that's afraid of them because they don't understand the condition. They don't understand who these people really are at their core. It's a very easy argument for Fenrir to make to rally them to the side of Voldemort. And it's interesting to see the two contrasting sides, right? You have Lupin and then you have Fenrir. But I think by and large, we would probably say that most werewolves from, I won't say human, but like from like they're innately good, probably people, right? It yeah, probably. You know, they just have this condition that transforms them. Whereas Fenrir is now going to utilize the way that they've been treated over time to his advantage, and rally them to the cause of Voldemort. So, yeah, we gotta we gotta call Joe. Uh, <laughs> we gotta be like, listen, we got yeah, some theories. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just so. <laughs> funny to me that a chapter that's supposed to be about the holidays right and spending time like again if we were to review this chapter back when we first started this podcast and we would probably have a much different take on it but now like we're looking deeply into sort of the subtext of what's going on and i think as we now get to the conversation between harry and scrimgey hour there's even more to talk about about the werewolves and how they're described as uh either a losing battle or like I think the ministry just never sent anybody to talk to them. You know, the way that Lupin is like, you're right, Micah. I think Dumbledore realized it's a, it's a smart thing. But in other fantasy as well, I'm thinking of Narnia for sure, probably Lord of the Rings. You get these beasts or these creatures that are just inherently bad or that skew bad. So whenever an evil Dark Lord rises up, certain beasts are always on their side and each individual piece of literature does its own job at either explaining or not explaining why i think for Mm -hmm. for harry's world for the wizarding world the ministry treats werewolves as though they'll just inherently skew bad there's just like oh they're they're beasts they're creatures they're not you know human with human wants and desires so we'll just treat them as though they're going to ally with voldemort and maybe that's why they don't like send any representatives because mm-hmm. they already think it's kind of like a lost, a lost cause. cause. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, but I think though that's where, and we can get into this when we talk about the conversation between Harry and mm-hmm. Scrimgey Hour, that Dumbledore is very smart in the sense that he's sending Lupin to you know, sort of infiltrate the werewolf community or at least be able to send back information. He's sending Hagrid to go parlay with the giants. Mm-hmm. He's trying to do the things that the ministry should be doing. Mm-hmm. And the ministry is failing at doing because they just don't, to your point, maybe don't see the value. Maybe they don't they don't think it's worth it. But clearly Dumbledore thinks otherwise. Yeah. I know you had um, a couple of points here. I think Eric... Uh, probably. Yeah. So before we get to the conversation between Harry and Scrimgeour, 
Um, I want to talk about Mrs. Weasley and I'm not going to be easy about it. I'm not going to be gentle. Um, she is very mean to Fleur and I don't care for it at all. I'm not, I'm not here for it. I mean, Fleur and Mrs. Weasley, it's presented as the sort of thing. 10 years ago, we were reading this. I'm like, oh, oh no, like Fleur is on eggshells and she doesn't seem to know it, uh, that she insults Mrs. Weasley's favorite uh, artist, Celestina Warbeck, by saying, that awful woman, or uh, this is awful, awful stuff. This music is so bad. Um, Mrs. Weasley doesn't knit her a sweater, and I'm pretty salty about it. <laughs> yeah. Like, everybody gets a sweater. Harry gets a sweater every damn year. Every Weasley kid gets a sweater every damn year. Bet Hermione got a sweater. You know who doesn't get a sweater? The fiance of her oldest damn son okay and that is not okay you cannot exclude somebody that close to your family in such an obvious way mrs weasley is so flawed right now and women hating women is so big right now and i can't stand it this bothers me to no end didn't mrs weasley do the same thing to hermione and goblet of fire yeah she did i think yeah you're right yeah so like this is kind of a trend for her like like <laughs> oh my little passive aggression and, and and like if it took you know 15 to 27 hours to knit a sweater for each person i'd say sure okay that's a lot of work maybe uh you know maybe still be worth it mrs weasley's still probably using magic it probably doesn't take that long it's a sheer act of passive aggression to not knit flora a sweater and yeah it totally is and i think this this has its roots sort of in the end of order of the phoenix when mrs weasley makes the sort of wild assumption that bill would have to cancel his wedding to fleur because he's been attacked by grayback and fleur was you know rightfully offended by that and it seems like ever since then these women have been at odds with each other um it sucks, but it's also not an uncommon narrative. Um, I think I think seeing conflicts between, uh, you know, women and their mother-in-laws is is a story that is as old as time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, you mentioned the thing at the end of Order of the Phoenix. Shouldn't they be over it by now? Shouldn't they have hugged and made up by now? It's Christmas. Yeah, I mean, Mrs. Weasley never liked Floor to begin with. And then... And then she sort of made the implication that Fleur was this sort of like very vapid um, kind of like two dimensional figure who would only care about the way Bill looks. And she was justifiably upset by that. And if there was never any apology. It's just it's just Fleur has not only an uphill battle, but just a never ending battle of having to prove herself to Mrs. Weasley. And you know what? A certain type of music is not everybody's taste. It's just get over it. You know, like these comments that and everybody has to kind of ooh and ah and like change the subject or Mr. Weasley's like time for tea, um, you know, to like clear the air. You know, it's all very comical. But underneath is something I think quite sinister like these women do not like each other um mm. yeah. oh yeah it's just it's it's a bit sad when you think and i always go back to this forgive me but mm-hmm. the goblet of fire the the omniscient goblet of fire that sees into your soul has chosen four champions of utmost character and integrity and floor was one of them so you know mrs weasley should think twice before casting any doubts on Fleur's character because the 
the centuries old mm-hmm. goblet uh, gave her a better reading of Floor than um, years of living around her have seemed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it and it's not only Floor though that Mrs. Weasley has some beef with. Uh, it's it's clear that she is not happy with Lupin, although that's not how the situation mm. is read uh, by Harry uh, related to Tonks, because Harry brings up the fact that her Patronus has changed form mm. and he's interested to learn how that could happen. And it's, it's mentioned by Lupin that a very traumatic event usually or an emotional state can can influence the form of someone's Patronus. And there we have it. We're led to believe that it's related to Sirius, but we learn later that it's directly related to Lupin and their and his unwillingness really to get into a relationship with Tonks. I mean, Harry is about to flat out ask him, which is the most brilliant form of uh, an interruption because I think Mrs. Weasley sees Percy coming with Minister. But Harry's flat out about to ask. He says, do you think it could be Da, da, da. And he's going to ask if it's Padfoot. He thinks, you know, could it be serious? Because and Lupin, you know, if that conversation were allowed to go 10 seconds longer, Lupin probably would have said it's probably not serious. And maybe Harry would know then that something was up between Lupin and Tonks. We just never know. Mm-hmm. And it's also a very interesting dynamic that Mrs. Weasley is, you know, very much against this bill and fleur relationship but yet is pushing the tonks lupin relationship because i feel like she's making arguments against her son's relationship that she's then using for lupin and and tonks that's interesting and they both have the same quote-unquote condition very little problem yeah Hmm. very little problem yeah huh all right so let's get to the the conversation between the minister and harry uh, as you mentioned, Percy and the minister show up at the borough, and you're led to believe initially that Scrimgeour is this nice dude <laughs> who convinced his uh, colleague to come home for the holidays and see his family and, and make amends, but then later learned that he's just there to talk to Harry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's like as subtle as a freight train here. <laughs> <laughs> Just in the area. Yeah. Oh, hey, young man, you with the lightning bolt scar and the green (laughs) eyes, please come help me find the garden. (laughs) Yeah. So can we talk about how Scrimgeour goes about this all wrong? And I love it, Laura, you know, the freight train comparison. I said he's too transparent and plays his hand way too early, way too easily uh, with Harry and I'm actually kind of disappointed by this because Scrimgeour is the, the former head of the Aura office. Maybe that's more of his forte, catching dark wizards. But I think that that would, you know, that would form a bond almost with Harry. Harry, you know, ends up taking over this position later on um, in his career. It's his ambition to become an Auror. So I, w- I would think that these two would would get along pretty well with each other. But that's not the case. And maybe it's just that Scrimgeour is not fit to be minister. I, I feel like he's probably getting a lot of pressure on his end to approach Harry and to try and get information out of him. Probably. It was just, you know, his attempt to be like, we'll see if you uh, come to the ministry, just pop in every now and then. I could probably get you a meeting with the head of the Auror's office. Like, 
he's clearly misjudging what kind of teenager he's dealing with here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's dealing with somebody who's come head to head with Voldemort numerous times at this point. You know, Voldemort murdered his family. This is somebody who is going to be more mature than your average 16-year-old. And he goes about it all wrong as a result of assuming that Harry could be easily swayed by an ability to make sort of an early career uh, an early jump up the career ladder. Exactly. Exactly. I, I don't think his attempt is that flawed. Really? I, uh, it's just that the, yeah, because Even by mentioning Umbridge, I mean, that's a huge mistake. Well, that's no, that's the problem. That's the problem, dude, is that the, the little things that have bugged Harry since day one about the ministry still do. And that's the problem. You pointed out, Micah, they're the same type of person. You know, Scrimgeour and Harry, ultimately, they want to catch dark wizards. They want to do what's right. I believe that in both of those men. But it's because and, – and, and like the prospect of getting to meet somebody who's actually an Auror. You know, I mean, Harry already met Mad-Eye, Tonks, a couple of the others. But, you know, it's a useful invite. I don't think there's anything wrong with that invite. The problem is that he mentions that, Dumble- that, um- uh, that Umbridge told him. That Harry wants to become an R. And immediately you can see Harry like close off because not only do you, you and I and everybody who's read this, the books know exactly what, how that conversation happened. Umbridge was extremely smug the entire time and was like insulting Harry, you know, when she told the minister that information you can just tell i can hear it right now like oh the potter boy thinks he's going to be an or you know you can use this against him minister mm-hmm. kind of bullshit like it just that's extreme the height of like anger on my end um but it's the it's the fact that she still has a job and that's said in the book the fact that that umbrage is still at the ministry is what boils harry's blood over um mm-hmm. He shows yeah. him his hand. Yeah, and 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 uh, you know, uh, Scrimgeour is just supposed to understand like what that means. Like, part of me does think that Scrimgeour has just not done his research, unfortunately, and like research into recent history to see that that bringing up Umbridge would have been the the very worst thing that he possibly could have done, um, because that relationship is crucial. That the the Harry's past relationship with the ministry, sure. He had one with Fudge, kind of. Fudge's incompetence touches everyone near and far and is ever-reaching and all-reaching. But Umbridge is the more direct hand. And Umbridge abused, tortured, and insulted Harry. Yeah. And and put his life at risk in in so many ways in just less than 365 days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that Scrimgeour could not have ever won this argument or gotten what he wanted after bringing her name. Up. Totally. But I, I do agree with what Laura was saying, though, when she was talking about him just coming in random days, in and out of the ministry, right? That all goes back to what Arthur was talking about, perception versus reality, right? The perception that you're catching mm. the people who are actually Death Eaters and putting them in prison. This is the same thing. Harry popping in and out, it would just present a perception that they're actually aligned on their their goals here and that Harry agrees with what the ministry is doing when we know that that's not the case. And so Scrimgeour is just trying to paint the picture that everything is okay, or at least those that are you know in, in power in the ministry are giving him this direction that this is what he needs to do. And, and I think that he's just not capable of doing it. He's not persuasive. 
Uh, but I do think, though, and there are a couple of quotes here where Harry is taking out a lot of his frustration for the ministry as a whole from from Fudge for the past five years yeah. on Scrimgey Hour. You know, he says, I don't remember you rushing to my defense when I was trying to tell everyone Voldemort was back. The ministry wasn't so keen to be pals last year. Uh, and then this line, which, you know, he really kind of digs into him and says, but you seem cleverer than Fudge, so I thought you'd have learned from his mistakes. He tried interfering at Hogwarts. You might have noticed he's not minister anymore, but Dumbledore's still headmaster. I'd leave Dumbledore alone if I were you. That's a threat. That is a huge, yeah, huge threat. It is a threat. Unfortunately, it's true. It's just, there could have been a common ground, but Harry shuts off. There there really could have been... I, I foresee a world in which Harry regularly pops into the ministry and because morale is really important, you, you guys. Like there are hundreds of ministry officials who are fighting a losing battle against uh, authoritarian, authoritarianism, totalitarianism and an autocracy. And they're, they're, you know, probably some good people there that are trapped in this downwards spiral. And Harry really could have been more patient, I think, with Scrimgeour. I mean, if Scrimgeour hadn't mentioned Umbridge, perhaps this could have gone a different way. And Harry could have said, these are my grievances, right, with the ministry. You, you, you're you operating, you're, you're, you're corrupt, you, you're still allowing somebody like Umbridge to, to hold office. I have a huge problem with that. Here's why. And explained himself. They could have just had a conversation about it, you know, because morale is pretty important. I liken it to um, I just rewatched Captain America, the Captain America movie, but they, they hire him first as a, um, an actor basically to sell war bonds because that's the important part is that the public is involved and that, you know, perception is, is all in the right direction or the troops can't even make it to the front lines because the public is not interested. And so Harry is very much being recruited as a mascot, like he says, as a poster child, but he just, when it comes down to it, lacks the, the faith and belief in the ministry's ability to do the right thing. Instead of demanding or asking Scrimgeour to release Stan Shunpike, he simply condemns Scrimgeour for having arrested Stan Shunpike. And I think that's where Harry is wrong in all of this. Like, ultimately, you got to have a conversation that comes from these are my problems and why I'm not willing to budge versus I have these problems, so I'm not willing to budge. Um, like, it just there's just inflexibility on hair on both parts, I think, on both sides. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not as though Scrimgeour approached him and was like, hey, come to the ministry and we can talk about this. Yeah. His approach was, you know, if people saw you popping into the ministry every now and then, he never once makes the offer or extends the offer to say, hey, can you please help us strategize? Mm -hmm. Like, nothing like that. And I think maybe if that had been sort of the tenor and the approach of the conversation, it might have gone very differently. But they are just looking for a poster child. And Harry has already communicated he's not interested in that. He had, in the last chapter, somebody offering to write a biography about him. And yeah. he said, no, I absolutely do not want that. <laughs> um, so th that that is not who he is as a character. Mm -hmm. That's but a good point. I do think it takes a lot of balls, right? Because this, this is a 16-year-old kid at this point yeah. talking to the equivalent of the president of the United States, the you know, prime minister of the UK, like this is not just the, a random person that's walking alongside of him. And, and he just lays into him, yeah. especially with those, 
two quotes that I mentioned. Um, I think that there is common ground for him and Scrimgeour. I don't think there's common ground for him in the ministry. I think there there could have been a chance for them to work closely with him, but I think there's too much history with the ministry, especially given the fact that somebody like Umbridge is still in power and he's just not going to go for it. Plus, I don't think he would do anything without running this by Dumbledore. It, you know, Scrimgeour also messes up in trying to get information on Dumbledore. And the question is, who is looking for this information? Again, it's very reminiscent of Crimes of Grindelwald when the ministry shows up and is trying to keep Dumbledore from acting and doing whatever it is that he's going to do. And they put those shackles on him yeah. um, for for tracking purposes. Yeah. I just think that that Scrimgeour plays his hand way too easily and and doesn't go about this the right way. Again, he might not be the right person for this job. Yeah. And that that shows through. Uh, that said, to kind of wrap up the discussion, do you think that Harry and Dumbledore would have benefited from working directly with the ministry, given that they do have somebody in power like Scrimgeour, despite all the flaws that he shows uh, in this conversation? That's a good question. Hmm. I, I want to say that they would have probably found themselves limited by all of the bureaucracy. And that's probably the reason why that was never much of a consideration. Also, you know, considering the fact that the ministry has attempted to interfere at Hogwarts so many times, I could see why Dumbledore wouldn't necessarily trust them to allow him to do what he thought needed to be done. Mm. Mm. That's a great point. Well, I think that that wraps up this chapter. A lot more was happening at the borough than just uh, stupefying a, a garden gnome and putting it on top <laughs> yes. of a Christmas tree. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. It was funny because we were talking before the episode saying, oh, you know, it, the doc is it's full, but I don't know that the conversation is going to carry us till a full episode. So uh, I think it did a lot more than yeah. that. Surprised ourselves. <laughs> did it, good guys. Yeah. Wow. But I know, uh, Laura, you uh, you found a number of threads uh, to connect here. I did, and some of these are just fun things that I found um, between Chapter 16 of Half Blood Prince and Chapter 16 of Chamber of Secrets. So we can go through them relatively quickly. Um, but they were just things that, as I read back through the two chapters, I was like, "Huh, that's fun." I don't think that was an accident that this was in both of these chapters. Um, so the first one is that you know Harry reminds Scrimgeour that Dumbledore has dodged the Ministry's attempts to interfere at Hogwarts before. And in Chapter 16 of Chamber of Secrets, Dumbledore has instructed the school to continue running normally, including giving final exams, uh, much to the chagrin of Ron (laughs) in particular. Um, So just as a reminder, this was towards the end of Chamber of Secrets. Hermione and the others are still petrified. Uh, There is still a basilisk on the loose and people are scared. And yet the school is still continuing to run as normal. So I thought that was fun. Then there was the fact that in chapter 16 of Half-Blood Prince, Lupin mentions that James used to refer to him being a werewolf as his, quote, furry little problem, (laughs) which led people to believe that Lupin had a poorly behaved pet rabbit. And in chapter 16 of Chamber of Secrets, Harry is very confused when he's supposed to be turning a pair of white rabbits into slippers. Oh, and that made me laugh. 
Um, I love these. I know. I know. They're just cute little connections. And I'm like, maybe they were on purpose. Maybe they weren't. I I tend to think they were because Joe is very clever. Um, And this is probably my favorite one. Percy just so happens to interrupt very important moments in Chapter 16 of Half-Blood Prince and Chamber of Secrets. So in Half-Blood Prince, Harry is starting to press Lupin about Tonks' Patronus change when he shows up with Scrimjower and sort of derails the conversation. And in Chamber of Secrets, Ginny is in the Great Hall and she's about to spill to Harry and Ron about Tom Riddle and the diary when Percy pops up and inter- interrupts the conversation and sort of sends Ginny away. Oh, that's right. Interesting. Damn it, Percy. <laughs> damn, damn it, Percy. Just ruining everything. And then the final one... Um, and this is kind of a loose connection, but I thought it was relevant. Um, Scrim- Scrimjower gave lame excuses for imprisoning Sam Shumpike, as well as kind of Mr. Weasley's acknowledgement that it was a problem, but sort of seeming inability to do anything about it. And then Lockhart in Chapter 16 of Chamber of Secrets gave a whole bunch of lame excuses about <laughs> not being able to help Ginny when the Hogwarts staff started pressing him about like, well, you said if you could have a go at him that you would have taken care of this a long time ago. So this is your chance. Wow. This is impeccable, Laura. This is <laughs> it's a great list. <laughs> it was just fun. I was I pulled out both books last night and I was going back and forth and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I also just thought about, too, how how Hagrid is kind of imprisoned for no mm. without any evidence. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah, you're right. Oh, my God. And- <laughs> that was my mind. <laughs> blown yeah. right there. <laughs> no, these are great uh, connections. Yeah. Wow. Um, shall we do MVP of the week? Yes. All right. Uh, I gave mine to the borough. Okay. I thought that, uh, you know, while not a, it is kind of a character in and of itself, and just the fact that it was all decked out for the holidays, despite the... Uh, garden gnome atop the uh, christmas tree i just liked uh the burrow kind of has its its own personality and and i just like the way that it gets described by jk rowling during the holidays and laura well what's your mvp uh mine is the christmas gnome angel <laughs> perched atop the tree i I fully support this gnome continuing to glare down on this family that has <laughs> wronged it and while I, I don't think that it's addressed later, what is done with the gnome, my hope is that it was released. Oh, God. It was just, back into the garden. Just put into the ornament box for next year. Oh. <laughs> put in a state of suspended <laughs> magical animation. Yeah, they're like, it, it, it's already stupefied, so we'll just put it in the box. Oh, my God. That's really messed up. Oh Come God. on, Fred and George, be better. It's be, 2019. Yeah, be best, Fred and George, be best. <laughs> I'm going to say my MVP of the week goes to Scrimjower, Rufus Scrimjower. He, you know, Dumbledore has not been letting him see Harry or talk to Harry. And I'll be damned if Scrimjower didn't find just the way to do it. 
it's true he like sabotages or like hijacks Harry's Christmas vacation, which is sort of not cool. But here's a man who needed to do something and he went and found a way to do it. He circumvented Dumbledore. He had his conversation with Harry. Even when it's clear that Rufus is not going to get everything he ever wanted, he con- he flat out asks Harry, why is Dumbledore leaving Hogwarts? Where is he going? You know, these other random questions that he's just like blunt force, like, I need to know. I'm going to ask. I just think that's very bold. And I appreciate as a character that Scrimgeour can be so upfront, even when he's losing, can just be like so purposeful in trying to glean some some uh, information. So yeah, that's why he's my MVP. And now we're going to rename the chapter. All right. I went with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Chapter 16, The Mistaken Minister. I went with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Chapter 16, No Sweater for You. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I went with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Chapter 16, Christmas Subtext. Like it. I like it. All right. Well, now it's time to move on to Quizich. Last week's question, what Christmas gift does Harry receive from Creature? Oh, yeah, I guess we didn't really talk about how everybody got some Christmas gifts. We did talk about the uh, the sweaters, though, which were the most important. Um, and so the correct answer. So actually, we don't know necessarily what was in the package that Creature gave to Harry originally. But uh, regardless, when Harry opens the package, he finds that it has maggots unfortunately in it which is did you guys gag when you read that yeah especially when Ginny later plucked a maggot out of harry's hair it made me want to vomit (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's a really really good point um so it is maggots and do you guys think real quick here before i announce the winners do you think that creature is obligated to send a christmas gift to Harry, because this is actually could be a whole 10 minute discussion. But why would Creature feel the need? Probably just because Harry is his master. But why? I mean, it's certainly like a Christian thing. Christmas is. But, you know, it's not like the Dursleys where they used to send Harry like a dirty sock um, just to prove a point that they like are thinking about him and hate him. Like, is that why Creature did what he did? Or is Creature contractually obligated to send Master a Christmas gift? Like, I really wonder about that. I I think there's probably something about having to send Master a Christmas gift. Yeah. Interesting. Well, like, why not? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he just meets, like, the lowest possible yeah. requirement. <laughs> well, yes, I sent you something. It was a package full of maggots. Yeah. So if Christmas, why not birthdays? That's what I'm saying. Got to give him a better gift for his birthday next year. I hope to see it. Um, So the people who got it right, uh, it was maggots, uh, include Justin Sharkey, Chimera VP, I'm Tall, That Ravenclaw Hobbit Guy, Marley, Fluffy McNutters, Alexandra, Jennifer, Young Susie Blood, Count Ravioli, Sarah Davis, Andre, Michelle, Danielle, Asim, Muggle Zoo, Retta, Justin, Jeff, Felix, Booker, Erica, A Man Has No Name, Game of Thrones premieres in April, Lindsay, Shauna Evans, Megan, The Real Slim Brady, King of Kings, and William Walton. 
Congratulations to all the people who participated uh, in this week's or last week's Quizich question. This week's Quizich question, how much does it cost to take apparition lessons? Uh, and this is uh, from our forthcoming chapter, chapter 17 of Half-Blood Prince. So those of you who are reading along with us will uh, reach this answer on their own uh, uh, in, due, in due time. And as a slight bonus question, uh, tell us what the cost is of apparition lessons broken down per week. So both that information is in the new chapter. Uh, once again, how much does it cost to take apparition lessons? And as a bonus, what's the cost per week? Uh, at reply MuggleCast and hashtag Quizich to participate. Awesome. Well, I think uh, that wraps up episode 404. There are a number of ways that uh, you can get in touch with us. First, though, wanted to plug the really good, as it says, bonus MuggleCast that we did on whether or not Ginny is a Mary Sue. Uh, you can find that over on patreon.com slash MuggleCast, where we do bonus installments a couple times a month for our patrons. You can also get a number of other benefits. You can listen to this show live as we record, as a number of patrons are doing right now. Mm -hmm. We do monthly giveaways, uh, amongst other things, and uh, just a great community of listeners over at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Laura, I was blown away. I just asked you a question. What did you mean about Ginny? And it turned into a 15 minute discussion last episode. So uh, I know I loved it. It was such a good conversation. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I love the most about doing this show is that we can just go down these rabbit holes, but then they turned out being really significant. <laughs> so definitely. If today's episode is any indicator, we sure can have discussion. So. Mm. Yes, we can. But yeah, this was a really good bonus muggle cast um, in which I thought, even though I definitely feel one way about this, <laughs> I felt like, Eric, you brought up a lot of really good points. I will say so when, when I, she expertly plucked the maggot out of Harry's hair, I was like, how did she spot that? She's such a Mary Sue. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> she she deftly plucks it out of his hair and Harry gets goosebumps. Oh, she's such a Mary Sue. It's so wish fulfillment, everybody. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but yeah, definitely listen to that. It was a really good discussion. Mm, yeah, for sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we didn't get to any this episode, but definitely feel free to call us at the MuggleCast voicemail line. That's You can do so by dialing one nine two zero three muggle that's one nine two zero three six eight four four five three or send us an email at mugglecast at gmail dot com you can also use the contact form uh, to get in touch with us on the website and send us feedback on our discussion from this episode on chapter sixteen or feel free to send us your thoughts on the upcoming chapter of half blood prince chapter seventeen if you want to send us real mail, you can do so um, by sending a package, an envelope, a letter, a parcel. Uh, Eric, what do, what do we accept over there? Nothing with maggots, please. Yeah, none nothing of that, with maggots. None of that. Thank you. Um, send it to MuggleCast at 4044 North Lincoln Avenue, box number 144, Chicago, Illinois, 60618. Wow, guys. So uh, I think that does it for episode 404. Uh, we'll see everybody next week for episode 405. Goodbye. Later. Bye.